We are going to Laurel Grove in Savannah, Georgia today, where we will find a large mausoleum made of gray brick with ironwork surround fence and a very lonely grave on the other side of the cemetery, an unmarked grave, graves for a husband and wife. We'll also go to Madison Square, where it holds one of Savannah's most treasured historic houses. The building's claim to fame is its size, architecture, and the hauntings. Home to a wealthy plantation owner and his family, though his life was filled with tragedy and scandal. What lies beneath? Francis Sorrell and the Sorrell House. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Files, I'm your host, Lachelle. We are going to a creepy place today, and to help tell about it, we have our favorite spooky lover, Taylor. Hey guys. You love all those spooky stories. <laughs> I think what I've realized, because I talk about this with Marcus, is I do like you do love them. I like hearing about them, but I don't want to experience them myself. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, faux show. Sure. I, I want no part of it happening to me, but I like hearing about them because I think it's interesting. Yes. And, and creepy, but I do not want them to happen to me. That's basically what I have figured out. Hey, I think you have hit the nail on the head because (laughs) none of us want all of these things to happen. Well, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody. But yeah, I don't want to have a ghost come up to me. But I like hearing other people tell about how the ghost came up to them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So we first are going to Laurel Grove. And like I mentioned... The mausoleum for the Sorrell family is really large and it's beautiful. It's kind of rectangular with a stepped up roof and it has these really neat little niches that once someone has died that you can put like a headstone in the niche and so you can still see who is buried there by looking at the outside. Does that make sense? So they reside inside, but they have these really beautiful rounded, like headstone markers on the outside. Interesting. And I haven't seen anything too much like that before. Sometimes a plaque or a small type thing, but I thought that this was really cool. So 
I don't know, for me, of course, I like the headstones, and this is a way that I got both, a mausoleum and headstone. One side doesn't have headstones, and the other side does, and it has Francis, Sorel, and his children. Anyway, that is very cool, and then it has really just this amazing ironwork fence that goes all the way around it, and there's also an internment in the fenced area and it has an urn with a flame in the top and also the finials on this ironwork it has little urns with a little flame and that goes all the way around so like on the corners you know every so mm -hmm. often it has these cool little looking urns with the flame on the top and the gate is really ornate. You'll have to see that in a picture. And then it has a little plaque that is very patinaed, so it's quite that pretty green that says Francis Sorel. And then up on the mausoleum, there's also another plaque that says F. Sorel and C. Green. So it looks like it was shared with the green family. Hmm. There's a place where there's a little fern growing out the side of the mausoleum and the doorway going in is rounded. It's kind of gothic looking. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's just, it's pretty amazing the site that was there. And Laurel Grove in general is just really an amazing cemetery. We've talked about it in two other episodes. One was James Pierpont oh. who wrote Jingle Bells. That's right. And then the second was Juliet Gordon Lowe who was the founder of the Girl Scouts. Oh, okay. Both just had amazing stories. Yeah. And I have found another one from the same cemetery, so I won't go into as much of the history and everything of the cemetery since I've already kind of told that a couple times. Yeah. And so if you don't remember, those are the episodes to go back to and hear more of that history. But it is one of those cemeteries that is just filled with beautiful sculpture, so much ironwork. I mean, you even walk under gates that have, you know, kind of a trellis going over of beautiful ironwork oh, wow. leaves going up above you. So, so much. Many cemeteries don't have really any gates or any surrounds for their family plot. And this cemetery really does. It has a lot and it just really adds something to it. It just is really cool. Lots of individual mausoleums and of course the amazing live oaks with dripping moss is just amazing. I liked it really almost as much as Bonaventure. Mm. And you hear so much about Bonaventure. But Laurel Grove has really most of the same stuff. Yeah. The type, you know, the same type monuments. Mm -hmm. But it does not have all of the people because it is just a little lesser known. It was established in 1852 and it was 
part of the answer to the problem of overcrowding in the cemeteries in the middle of town, like Colonial Park, Mm -hmm. which we are definitely going to get to Colonial Park because it was amazing too. And so the authorities, they invited all the citizens that had loved ones and families in Colonial Park that they could reinter them in Laurel Grove free of charge. And so about the next 30 years, close to 600 people were relocated. Wow. And if you're to see Colonial Park, it's really not that big. So it's amazing. You can see why it was completely overcrowded Mm -hmm. and smelly and having some problems because it's really not a big cemetery. Close to 600 people were relocated over to Laurel Grove So it is actually, it is massive. Hmm. It shows that they're just, you know, there were some really hard conditions back in those days. And so it shows how many people died kind of during this era. Yeah. So it's also in that Victorian era. And so there's still those amazing headstones and sculptures. It was there during the Civil War. And so there is just a massive internment of Civil War Confederate dead there Mm -hmm. as well. And, of course, a few ghost stories. Yay! No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But let's talk about Francis Sorrell. So I'm going to give you some history about the Sorrell family and how this became one of the most haunted houses in Savannah. It also has one of the most scandalous stories and one of the most famous legends in all of Savannah. Francis Sorrell was born in what was known then as St. Dominique, but now we know it as Haiti. On May 4th, 1793, that is going back a ways. His father was Colonel Antoine Francois Sorel, and his second wife was Eugenie de Sutra. His father was of French French descent and had attended France's Royal Navy Academy, and he had become an infantry lieutenant and an engineer, and he had been sent to Santo Domingo in the 1760s to map out the colony. We don't know much about Francis's mother. She died only a month after his birth, and records really don't make a mention of her. But family members theorize that she was probably a free person of color, and that she and Colonel Sorrell, they're not really sure when they were married, possibly not until after Francis's birth, which she only lived for a month after, so you know, sometime in that month. And so Francis was of mixed race, but he was very light-skinned, and he never identified as black any time in his life. In fact, he passed for white the entire time. No one knew anything. No one suspected that he had anything else but European and French blood, which is kind of interesting as we get further into the story. But he was born during a really volatile time in Haiti's history, and it was the stages of the Haitian 
revolution. There was many slave uprisings and they were trying to, of course, fight against these plantation owners. With his father being a plantation owner, this was very dangerous for little Francis. And his father was gone a lot, of course, and his mother had passed away. And he was still a colonel. He was often away on duty during this time. And so, of course, Colonel Sorrell and young Francis, they would have been targets of these hostilities. And supposedly it was just a bloody, awful time. And Francis actually told his daughter later that he witnessed, this is in quotes, little children torn asunder and cut into pieces, unquote. Goodness. So obviously a very super scary time. Well, sometime in 1798, his father was away and five-year-old Francis himself was nearly murdered. And he would later credit one of his nurses with saving his life by hiding him and later taking him to Port-au-Prince and there placing him in the care of some of her relatives. And so they took care of this little child and helped raise him. His father, who had left Haiti in 1803, left without his son, and he never returned for him. Mm -hmm. And Francis never saw his father again. Sad. And so as a young teenager, Francis, he worked on the docks of Port-au-Prince, and at some point he went back and he found his former home and it was burned to the ground. And so he had absolutely no money, no family, And so Francis began to work as a clerk in accounting house of a merchant firm in Port-au-Prince. So this is where he starts to become more of a professional man. So it shows in the records of this firm that he worked for that he was the chief clerk as early as 1811. And by the time he was 19, he was transferred to a branch of the business in Baltimore. And so the immigration records placed him in Baltimore in 1818, where he decided that he would live in Georgia. And so in the next six years, he proves himself to be a successful clerk at his new position. And in 1819, about a year before what they call the Great Panic, Francis would partner with a man named Henry Douglas. And he is partners with Henry for quite a long time. He had been a supervisor in the Baltimore office, and they decided to bring their business to Savannah. And the firm was called Douglas and Sorrell. Crazy, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You can find advertisements for them, and they sold whiskey, butter, corn, and flour. And these were in the Savannah Daily Republican as early as 1818. And then in 1819, they are listed as shippers Hmm. in the Outward Bound Slave Manifests. So they actually are not only shipping goods, but people as well. Oftentimes during that time, that is, you know, if you... Were in the shipping business. Yeah, that's what you did, unfortunately. Yeah, it's ugly. There's only this one listing while they were partners. But then later when Francis was independently, was independent, he, while they were partners, but Francis would later independently transport slaves by sea on several more occasions. 
They moved to Savannah, established themselves as merchants, and by this time he's about 27 years old. And there came through Savannah the most devastating fire in the history of the city. And that was in January of 1820. And many merchants, we talked about Juliet, Gordon Lowe, well, Andrew Lowe, her father-in-law, um, Joseph Habersham, they had huge damages to their store and had to temporarily sell their goods and other buildings. Well, Francis and his business partner, they escaped this devastation. And despite that it had destroyed, the fire had destroyed nearly half of Savannah's business district. Wow. And so another reason why he became more and more wealthy, he kind of, he dodged the bullet. Yeah. Many of the merchants at that time were selling these same things, cotton, rice, sugar, you know, whiskey, rum, tobacco, and other agricultural staples. Um, but this is what they sold as well. And so the 1820s in Savannah, for a lot of people, it characterized financial ruin. But this was a time for Francis that he began to really make personal and financial gains. And like I said, at that time, there weren't a lot of free men of color that were so wealthy and yeah. merchants, right? And this kind of thing in Savannah. And so if people had known his, his ancestry, they might not have been so excited to have him in their midst, so to speak. Yeah. And it just also brings to the point that here he was half black. He was saved literally by the slaves that his family enslaved, right? Yeah. And then he continues to work in the slave market, work in the slave trade. Isn't that just icky? In this case, he might have been trying to just kind of blend in and felt mm -hmm. like this was a way to do that. Or he just straight was like, there's profit in the slave trade, so I'm just going to do it. Going to make some yeah. money. I mean, mm -hmm. unfortunately, we don't know like what we don't. his thought process was. but Yeah. Anyway, it makes, it makes for kind of some interesting details and paradoxes in this story. Yeah. In September of 1822, Francis was then 29 years old, and he marries 17-year-old Lucinda Ireland Moxley, and she was his partner Henry Douglas's niece. Okay. And Lucinda had come from a very wealthy family in Virginia who owned just vast tracts of land in Westmoreland and Prince William counties. No doubt making making Francis Sorrell's wealth even more. Yeah. Well, two years later, Francis was naturalized, which I think is a way of saying that he became a citizen, right? Sure, yeah. In Savannah's Superior Probably. Court. A few years later, he ends his partnership with his wife's uncle, apparently just on good terms, and he began operating independently. In 1826, this is where Francis appears for the first time as a slave owner in tax records and makes his first lot purchase. 
of land. The tax digest indicates he was taxed on the ownership of three slaves. There's lots of information on the slaves and who they were. A woman named Nancy, who was 40 years old, and how much even, you know, they went for $1,000, $2,500, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, sometimes we can't find much in the way of, of records, but there was a lot of records that I could find. Now Francis was a citizen, he was married, he's a business owner, and he's just acquiring more wealth, and he's starting to buy land. Between 1826 and 1856, he purchased land all over the city. Then he buys the lot that his house would be built on, and a man named Charles Kluski was in the process of building his Greek revival house at these lots, which fronted Madison Square, and was valued at $8,000 upon its completion. I love that, $8,000. Tragedy struck in 1827 after five years of marriage. Francis's wife, Lucinda, died after contracting yellow fever. Oh, no. It comes around again. It's like, how many stories have we told with yellow fever? That dang thing. I know, it was awful. Two years later... Francis marries his wife's sister. That's pretty common. (laughs) Matilda Amanita Douglas Moxley. It was very common in those days. And all told, I don't know how many of each of the sisters had what children, but Francis would have 11 children between these two wives. Wow. Although three of them would die before reaching adulthood. Rodolphine, the second daughter of Francis and Matilda, the second wife, was born in 1832 and died two years later. Their third child together, Anderson, would also die when still an infant. And Matilda Anne, the fourth child of Francis and Matilda, born in 1844, died at the age of six. And I believe that these children are there at Laurel Grove. And so this poor woman, she loses her sister Mm -hmm. and then loses three more of her children. So a very rough time. So their home is what is on lot six and it is greek revival with a rectangular floor plan containing a large central passage that bisects large rooms on each side this is very much the antebellum home style that we see so many times right Mm -hmm. that large breezeway going through the center with the stairs going up and with large rooms on each side of the house Something neat about it is it has three piazzas, and so they are basically like a veranda, right? Oh, okay. So on the front and the rear of the house, there are these balconies. Mm-hmm. The home presently contains 
a two-story detached outbuilding, like once used as a carriage house and quarters for slaves. It's not really known for certain when this building was constructed. And so it could have been during the time that they lived there, but that's not for certain. And during that time period, the people that were enslaved many times resided within the same home. And it was very large and it had a large attic space and basement. And so that could have very well have been the way it was then. They might not have had a separate quarters. In 1835, he was taxed for the first time on a four-wheel carriage. Isn't it cool what you can find? <laughs> but he finally, you know, was had a carriage and a carriage house. But some of the 19th century maps kind of defy that there was a carriage house or any detached building built in conjunction with a home. Mm-hmm. Now, this becomes significant later. That's why I'm talking about okay, this. Okay, I was like, You're um... like, why are we talking so much about the stupid outbuilding? That becomes part of the legend. An interesting side note, his son, Moxley Sorrell, fought for the Confederates in the Civil War and was actually... A brigadier general and he fought in the siege of Port Pulaski where the Union forces overwhelmed the Confederates and took the fort so his son was actually quite a big Confederate yeah and his other son his son was actually named Francis Sorrell and he became a doctor and he actually lived a very long life but There in the basement of the Sorrell house, there was kind of a surgery. There was the area that he saw patients and just think of all the times that he was there during the Civil War and just yellow fever and accidents and all of the things that could happen. And So he saw many, many patients there and did surgery right there in the basement of their house, which they believe also contributes to the hauntedness of this house. Makes sense. Today, which Mm -hmm. it totally does. So it's actually called the Sorrel Weed House now, if you were to go and take a tour. And that is because later on, the Weed family owned the house. So it's called the Sorrell Weed House. Okay. And it's just one of Savannah's most famous buildings, haunted or otherwise. Ah. And in the mid-20th century, it became one of the earliest homes to be restored in the city's preservation movement. There's really some amazing um, preservation and restorations going on throughout the city all of the time. But the historic Savannah Foundation, they made the Sorrell Weed House their first public exhibit. So we went and visited the Sorrell Weed House and... It's really, really interesting. We went in first into the carriage house or the slave quarters, which, of course, today don't look exactly like they did back then. There's kind of a bay window in the front, and there wouldn't have been a bay window in a carriage house or slave quarters. But, of course, all of these buildings have used have been used many times for different things, office buildings, you know, apartments, this kind mm-hmm. of thing. And it's interesting to go inside. That you have a lot of feelings um, just knowing where you are and the things that happened in 
in these homes and I, I like taking these tours. It feels like every one of the houses kind of have a different feeling, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And some of them you feel totally fine. And then some of them just don't have a great feeling about them. This one was kind of one of those where it was like, Meh, it's okay. You know, but supposedly it's really haunted. But mm-hmm. I didn't have any scary or weird feelings while I was there. But They've restored it really beautifully, and a lot of the things are original. Um, The crown molding, the ceiling medallions, the fireplaces, Mm -hmm. the gold picture rail, pocket doors, which I love those old pocket doors, and the floorboards were all original. And they also have that faux hand-painted marble surrounding the fireplaces. So if you were rich, you could afford marble. But if you were richer, Mm -hmm. it cost even more to have someone hand feather paint the wood to look like marble. (laughs) Why would you do that? Because it costs more. And so (laughs) it looked more fancy. That's dumb. (laughs) I know. But you see this all over the South. And so that's just one of those interesting things. They're like, yeah, we could get marble, but it actually... We could have someone paint it to look like marble, and that costs more. So then we look even more fancy. Ridiculous. The house today, it has gained fame by some appearances and movies. The building is actually featured in the opening scene of Forrest Gump, where the scene is shot from the roof of the Sorrel Weed House and shows Madison Square and the surrounding area. Wow. You know where the little feather goes flying? Yes. It's from that house. It's been on the Today Show and, of course, all the ghosty TV shows, including Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures. Oh, our favorite. And Travel Channel's Most Terrifying Places in America. And there you go, Taylor. I was in one of the most terrifying places in America, and I wasn't even scared. Wow. You're so brave. (laughs) Well, I wasn't there at night in the dark, so that could be a whole different thing. (laughs) So let's start getting into the legend and what happened with Matilda, his second wife. Well, Matilda, as we talked about, had been through a lot of loss, right? Yeah. There was eight children. She, of course, had lost three of her own children, her sister, and not too surprisingly, she was suffering from mental illness. Mm -hmm. Well, who wouldn't be depressed after all of that, right? Right. And I don't know if it was depression, but of course, the doctor's didn't really diagnose correctly or really at all because they didn't know much about mental illness in those days. Yeah. And there was that one drug that was routinely prescribed to their patients. And that was? Laudanum. Oh, I've heard of laudanum. Which is basically morphine all nice and raw and unrefined very potent and uh uh-huh very addictive yeah 
That's so great. <laughs> That's so crazy that that was just like their go-to was this thing that was very addictive. And people were prescribed this like all the time. They were. For sleep, for anxiety, after a death of a family member, for pain. So they're like, you feel anything you don't want to feel? <laughs> Here, take some laudanum. It'll make you feel nothing. It, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, so it was it was their go-to, but it was so dangerous because it was so addictive. It was, and they didn't have a great way of dosing, and so most people were over-medicating themselves on a regular basis. Mm. And to make matters worse, they didn't realize the dangerous effects of drinking alcohol and taking drugs like laudanum, and so... Yikes. That could make a very bad concoction in your system. Yeah. Yeah. So here is where the famous legend takes us. One of the most famous legends in Savannah. Matilda and Francis seemed to have a happy marriage, but Francis was also known for his vices. He began having an affair, which I'm going to put in air quotes, with one of his enslaved women named yeah. Molly, who was the head slave. And Francis even gave Molly her own room in the slave quarters just so he could conduct his affair privately. Ooh. Now, Matilda found out about Molly, and she went out to the balcony distraught and enraged. Matilda jumped off of the second floor balcony she landed headfirst, cracking her skull on the floor of the concrete courtyard. Molly was then struck by terrible guilt. Being a slave, she would be held liable for both the affair and Matilda's death. And so weeks later, Molly's body was found hanging in her room in the carriage house from an apparent second suicide. Although, some conclude Molly was led to suicide by the ghost of her lover's wife. Oh boy. Let's, let's kind of break this down a little bit, deconstruct it, talk about it. Absolutely. <laughs> because there's a lot going on right here. There is a lot going on. So, this is told by all of the ghost tours. Like, that is the story. That is... That is it. And if you just love a good ghost story, like, that's terrifying. That is tragic. That is all the things, right? Like, a wife, she finds out her husband is having an affair right under her own roof, throws herself off the balcony, and then in guilt and sadness, the other woman then hangs herself. (sighs) All right. So first, was Francis having an affair with Molly? No, because... When you own somebody (laughs) and you are supposed to be above them, what choice do they really have in, you know, consenting to a relationship like that? So what if she said no? What was he going to do? Stop? No. Right. He's probably just going to keep pursuing it anyway. So there's no way that that was actually like a consenting. Right. Maybe a little bit consenting, but no way full consenting relationship. I guess, you know, a woman could be like, oh, 
well, I don't really have much choice, but I do like this guy anyway. I mean, I guess there could be consent and not just complete, like, I've read so, yeah. so much history, so many stories, and so many times that the enslaved women, they just, they detested their lives so much, and then have to literally have sexual activity with these men that own them. I mean, you can only imagine how that could feel yeah. like we just can't even. Yeah. So I'm not sure I would call this an affair. So anytime I saw this in yeah. all of the articles and stories and everything that and when it says affair, like I just cringe every time. But yeah. we know that men in those days that owned these women, they took advantage of them all the time. They couldn't yeah. say no. It was sexual exploitation by the slave yeah. owners. And that's really all that it was, right? Yeah. Whenever there is a situation where someone is, you know, above you and then has a sexual relationship, they still call that a form of abuse, you know, sexual exploitation. That, that happens in like some of these big companies. If there's like a True. CEO that has an underling that all of a sudden he's like having sex with, it can be seen as like, well, I felt like I had to do it because he's my boss right? and I didn't want to lose my job. So no matter what, that will always kind of be yeah. the underlying and throughout feeling the history of, it. of women. Yeah. That is how it has been. Right. Because there are consequences if you don't comply. Yeah, exactly. So even if he didn't totally force himself onto her, it still probably was like, yeah, but then like, where am I at if I leave this place? Am I going to get killed? Am I going to yeah, be sold away fear. to somebody that's even worse? Like, what is, what's going to happen if I refuse? So no way right. is it totally like an affair. It makes me feel icky when we call it that. I know. <laughs> I know. Me too. That's exactly how I felt. And even in cases where the enslaved occupied positions as they were like officially their mistress mm -hmm. and gave birth to many of the children from these unions, you know, many of these relationships, of course, they were not the choice of the enslaved yeah. and they were coerced. Yeah. They were bought and for that purpose basically. Yeah. Um, I found an experience by a woman named Louisa Piquette, and this shows an example of this. She said later on, Mr. Williams told me what he bought me for. He said he was getting old, and when he saw me, he thought he'd buy me and end his days with me. He said if I behave myself, he'd treat me well, but if not he'd whip me almost to death, oh. which is absolutely, it's just heinous. It's awful. But yeah, I just felt like we have to talk about that because why do they call this an affair? Ew. Yeah, it's kind of icky. You know, most of the wives probably knew about what's going on mm -hmm. anyways. Yeah, they had to not be happy about it. She has to know that these things are going on. I mean, it's it's in her household. It's in, yeah. you know, her view, so to speak. Yeah. And let's go back to the part that the carriage house might not have even been built at this time. And even though that is part of the legend, it wasn't necessarily there. And so this could have been taking place in a room, in her very own home. Mm -hmm. And this could be in the basement. It could be in the attic. You know, it could be 
one of those things, but it's kind of interesting that that is all part of the legend and it's not, you know, for sure that it was, that building was even there. So let's go back to poor Matilda. She's suffering from mental illness. She took laudanum, was washing it down with lots of wine. The tour guide at Sorel House said that on that March day in 1860, she went out on the second story balcony and fell over the railing landing on her head and that she would die 12 hours later due to cerebral hemorrhaging. 12 hours later? That's such a long death. But how can they prove that it was actually, you know, death by suicide instead of maybe murder? Or accident. (laughs) I mean, they absolutely I guess accident, too. My mind went immediately to To murder. Murder. (laughs) Oh! <laughs> that's that's the, my Taylor. <laughs> that's the crime nerd within me. That's the crime junkie. Like, Taylor's murder. going. Yeah. Um, somebody pushed her. Now you know Taylor. Yeah. That's pretty funny because this whole time I've been thinking about her being on laudanum and she's drugged. She's intoxicated. Like that would have been easily like she fell over. Yeah, it was like an accident. Yeah, but. Ooh, I nobody went. brings up murder, <laughs> homicide. <laughs> her husband comes out, or the maid, she comes out and pushes her off. Oh, I wouldn't say that the maid did it, but I would say <laughs> that the husband would do it. The husband did it. Yeah, I don't if know. he was like, man, I don't want my secret getting out. She found out. And she knows, like, she's going to ruin my life. Kill so her. So she walks in, she sees them. She runs up to the balcony to catch a bit of air. He comes running up behind her yes. and shoves her. And in a fit of rage, he shoves her off the balcony and she dies. You just came yeah. up with a whole new scenario. Right? But it was ruled death by suicide. They weren't concerned with the details. And I don't know who decides this, you know, or kind of what happens to determine this. But that's what was said that it was death by suicide and so she is not allowed to be buried in the family mausoleum in laurel grove oh because oh i guess that's like probably for religious reasons huh because they believed it was a sin yeah you killed yourself then it was a sin so yeah and it's sacred consecrated ground and people committed suicide were not allowed to be buried in consecrated grounds. And so so she is buried in an unmarked grave in Laurel Grove. Is that the saddest thing you've ever heard? It's so sad. Did you find an unmarked grave? No, we literally looked for her. Um, We were able to find, I can't remember if, if it was on find a grave or they also had a register that you could go up to that was electronic and you can search for people and find where they're buried. And we found Mm -hmm. the section basically that she was buried in, but we could just never find like the exact number. Maybe is delineated. Maybe there is a plaque number or something. We could never find yeah. like an exact place. Like I really wanted to be like, I wanted to go to where she was laid to rest, right? I wanted to go yeah. there and pay my respects to her. And it was really tough because there are monuments everywhere. Like I told you at the beginning of the, yeah. the episode, there are just 
grave markers and so much everywhere. And there are some spaces here and there, but anyway, we just really couldn't, we couldn't find Matilda. Sad. A really, I think, kind of neat thing that the family did after their father died. He doesn't really fare too well after all of this. He, yeah, you know, is somewhat responsible for what happened in one way or another. But Francis is completely ostracized from society. And our... Um, tour guide said you know if you are a businessman and you are well known about town you have one job and that's to be able to control your woman yeah which he failed to do and therefore he's persona non grata about town yeah so right around this time different sources say different times but they sell their home and they move into kind of more like a town home next to it it's a little smaller it looks pretty much the same but at some point um this is when they sell it to the weed family and he moves next door got it hence the sorrel weed house now and so he moves next door he lives there for the next 10 years and he dies in 1870 three days after having a stroke one day after his 77th birthday and But he was surrounded by his children and grandchildren. Um, He got very close to some of his daughters in his later years. And so even though he wasn't much in society anymore, he had the love of his family. And so that's good. And he was laid to rest with his first wife in their mausoleum in Laurel Grove North. In your opinion, we're going back to... Molly, the enslaved woman that he forced himself on. I'm going to say that. I'm not going to say an affair because I don't want to say it fair. Do you think that she herself felt bad about what happened and then she killed herself? Or do you think it is the ghost of Matilda that basically took her revenge? Or what do you think? Ooh. I mean, personally, I think it would be more just feeling bad i'm sure that she had or at least a regard for her mistress right knowing that someone died because of what you've had a hand in at least whether you wanted to or not had to have been you know just really awful and it could have just been too like since he basically like forced this relationship it could have just like all of that sadness and stress could have accumulated on top of what mm-hmm. happened with Matilda too and oh, which yeah, caused her for to sure. do what she did you know it could just be like she already right. felt that way and then when Matilda you know jumped off the balcony then she felt even worse about everything and then decided to now something that i found really interesting was i won't go back to the history in detail but they have gone back and they have found that there was an enslaved woman named molly Mm -hmm. that did work there but there also showed that at some point that she had been sent on a ship 
I'm not gonna be able to remember where, and it didn't, there is no record of her returning. So did she just leave and people were like, oh, she committed suicide yeah. or did she have nothing to do with this? Like, is this just all speculation? Mm-hmm. Is this just 1860s women gossip yeah. that this woman fell off her balcony and it was probably because her husband was engaged in an affair or quotes. Maybe it was that pretty Molly that used to work for them or you know who knows like what really happened yeah this is just the story that we've been told exactly the gossip has been passed down from generation to generation exactly we got to remember that there's oral tradition yeah and there's oral history yeah oral tradition it just means that that information is passed down And, you know, you can't definitively link it to anyone who actually witnessed the event. Yeah. But oral history, right, is like your great grandfather was in the war, right? He told exactly what happened. Like, that's an oral history. Like, oral tradition, I just, it just is kind of like, to me, that's like gossip, right? Yeah. It's kind of more like saying that it's a legend, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And so this legend, boy, it has gotten out of control. And like I said, maybe maybe people will be like, oh, Lachelle, why did you like take it apart? We just like the ghost story. And <laughs> maybe they'll like that I deconstructed all of it. Mm, that's okay. But I like to kind of get to the bottom of history. So that's part of it. Yeah. So on the mausoleum that I told about the tablets that are there... Their children did a really neat thing. And so maybe her body wasn't able to be in this mausoleum, but they put up this tablet, sacred to the memory of our beloved parents, Francis and Matilda Sorrell. With dutiful and most grateful hearts, their surviving sons and daughters have placed this tablet in the year of our Lord, 1870. And that is when he passed away. So... They're like, oh, yeah, well, we're still going to make a tribute to our mother who meant everything to us. And we are putting her name here. Yeah. That really said something to me that they, you know, had a lot of love for their parents. And so I think that that's really interesting. Also buried there is that General Moxley Sorrell that I talked about. And he was actually in General Longstreet's corps, which is kind of he's pretty famous commander. And then there's some of their children and their husbands and wives that are there as well. Anyway, so I'm sorry if I messed up, you know, the the ghost story, but have no worries. There are ghosts there. <laughs> no matter if the story is completely true the way it is told, there are many, many ghosts. Now, one of the reasons that this house is so full of ghosts, like we We talked about the other, the son, that was the doctor and how many people died, right, Mm -hmm. in the surgery that's right there. But before this house was built, there was the siege of Savannah and a soldier's burial ground. We told about how the house sits on Madison Square. And this exact area was the site of one of the most vicious battles during the American Revolutionary War. 
part of the siege of Savannah. And joint American and French forces attempted to push the British out of Savannah, who had taken the city just a year before. The Revolutionary Army was both outmanned and outgunned, and bodies were piling up fast. The revolutionaries dug a trench there at Madison Square, which is literally where this house is, Mm -hmm. to bury their dead. Hundreds of soldiers died in the span of a few weeks. And in the heat of battle, the dead and injured couldn't even be differentiated, which is just so awful. Sick and injured soldiers were thrown into the pit with the dead and were often buried alive. Oh. After the battle, the bodies weren't exhumed and put in a cemetery. The city discontinued to expand around that old battlefield. In Madison Square and that surrounding area that were built in the 1830s, 50 years after the war, many of the buildings, including the Sorrel Weed House are built over the remains of the dead soldiers. Dang, that's messed up. So we can see with two suicides, deaths of children, hundreds of revolutionary soldiers, it's a lot. Yeah. So no wonder they are called the most haunted house in Savannah. Yeah. And it's one of the most well-known haunted houses in the world. Many say that the ghosts of Molly and Matilda still haunt this house visitors have seen silhouettes walking through the halls some have captured photos of their spirits others claim to have seen the reflection of female apparitions in the mirror without the physical bodies to accompany them yikes now that is terrifying i don't like that one (laughs) and i saw an article i read of course many articles in country living magazine And this person took pictures and it was a nighttime tour. Later, when they looked at the pictures, there was a man standing in the back that had kind of shoulder length hair and kind of more old fashioned looking clothes who was not in their tour. And in the picture before, there was other people standing in front of the mirror. And in the picture with him, those people are gone and he is standing there. And then the very next picture, the people are standing there again. Yeah, I don't like that. That is super creepy. Yeah. It is said, of course, that Molly haunts the slave quarters. There was a man who once rented the space as an office and didn't know anything about the history. And he said that he constantly felt a sense of uneasiness as if he was being watched. (laughs) Other people claim to feel sick or drowsy upon entering these quarters. And some even say they feel like they're being strangled by a rope, which could be like a residual memory of Molly's Mm. death. That's scary. Yikes. I don't like that. I know. I would not want to experience that. No, 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 no. Uh uh. Some have claimed to hear the sounds of social gatherings in the living room of the house. The sounds will suddenly stop when someone approaches. And the source of the sounds, of course, have yet to be found, though it's believed that it's like a phantom gathering of the many social parties. Makes sense. Some people have said that they feel a dark 
psychic energy upon entering the house. And the dark energy is said to stem from all the bodies buried at the siege of Savannah. Sometimes people can hear the sounds of warfare, which can be heard, especially during quiet nights. Our tour guide said that she was there alone at the house one night for about an hour or so. And she said it was pitch black and she decided to go up the stairs and it's not part of the tour. And she said she saw all kinds of things up there. She would not tell and she does not go up there anymore. Wow. Also, I thought this was pretty crazy. There was a husband and wife that were on our tour and they had been there a few years ago and had done the tour and they had their kids with them. And he had a little girl in the stroller that was about three years old and they were outside and they were looking up at the house and his little girl was just staring up at the house and she says, who's that lady? And they look up at the house and they don't see anything. And she says, that lady up in the window looking at us. (sighs) Kids, they just are more in tune with those things than us. I know, they're so pure. It's like, yeah, literally saw a ghost in the window. And this was just dude on the tour. You know, this isn't like ghost tour trying to make money. You know, this is just like, no, my kids saw a ghost here, you know? So it's just really crazy. It is crazy. So what do you think, Taylor? Haunted? Yes. (laughs) I had to think about it for a second. (laughs) You're like, let me think. Yeah, I think if you're going to have a very emotional type event happen in a house like that, like they did, then there's going to be residual energy. And even if they are not physically there doing the haunting, there'd still be that feeling that like something bad happened in this house Mm -hmm. even if they're not creating totally things happen there to me i felt more like in the basement or in what may have been the slave quarters like i felt more of an uneasiness in those Mm -hmm. locations than i did upstairs but it's like upstairs was where they had parties and where they sat in the evenings and had their dinner and those kinds of things so to me i felt more like Definitely the basement and the doctor's surgery area. They had tools left from him. They had bullets like that had been pulled out of wounds. I mean, it was pretty crazy, but it's Savannah. Thanks, Taylor. Yeah. Thanks for being here with us today and help tell this spooky tale and so much history. Of course. If you love Haunted Savannah stories, I have a great book for you. It is actually called Haunted Savannah, the official guidebook to Savannah Haunted History Tour by James Kasky. Go check it out. It has every spooky story you can think of in Savannah, and it is just amazing. Go check that out. To end, I have a quote from Tia Miles who wrote Tales from the Haunted South. Domestic tranquility proved to be elusive and indeed impossible in the South's most elegant homes. Tourists of the American South suspect this horror and even seek to safely confront it, which is perhaps what makes Sorel Weed the most infamous historic home in Savannah. 
This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners.